Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He is the Rudy and Marilyn Neff Family Chair of Political Economy at Augustana University and has taught business, economics, and policy courses at NYU's Stern School of Business, Temple University, and the University of Virginia. He's the co-author or co-editor of over two dozen major books, most recently including The Best of Thomas Paine and Financial Exclusion. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Robert Wright. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So firstly, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your area of expertise. Uh, I'm an, a business, uh, economic, and uh, policy historian. Took my PhD from SUNY Buffalo in 1997. Uh, I've taught in a, in a variety of uh, places, some of which you, you mentioned in your in your intro, um, and uh, I've uh, published quite a few few books and articles on uh, on economic history and financial history. Okay, um, so in a piece you recently wrote entitled "Getting Real About Taxes," you fervently argued the unconstitutionality of the proposed taxes on unrealized gains. So, could you please tell us a bit about um, why you would argue that such taxes are unconstitutional, and how you feel they would negatively impact Americans if implemented? Well, uh, in that article, I, you know, I basically just tip my hat to my boss, uh, Phil, Phil Magnus. He has a full article about uh, why uh, it would be unconstitutional. Um, I'm concerned that the federal government doesn't care that much about the Constitution anymore um, and could just ignore it. Uh, or that um, an amendment could pass. Uh, like the 16th uh, Amendment uh, could pass and 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 render, um, you know, a, a, a unrealized uh, capital gains tax uh, uh, constitutional. Um, I, I think it would be a very very bad um, policy uh, to to do so, um, especially without um, indexing, uh, you know, taxes to uh, inflation. Uh, the 16th Amendment passed just before, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve came online. Um, and, you know, that led over a course of, uh, you know, six decades or so to us abandoning the gold standard and hence price level stability. So our, um, our, our income tax system, you know, really doesn't account for uh, inflation. And there were people in the 1970s during the great, uh, you know, the so-called great inflation who were who were pushing for it. Um, but uh, when the great moderation came along in the, in the 80s, 90s and, and aughts, you know, people just kind of uh, uh, gave up uh, on, on that. But um, with the possibility that we're going to see, you know, fairly significant inflation um, you know, over the next few years anyway, we need to... Uh, to seriously think about the implications of um, of having a, a income and and other tax system based on nominal values. Okay, um, so in this piece and in the past, you've spoken about the debt and inflation crisis, which I wanted to ask you about today. So historically speaking, the reason behind the eventual collapse of many great civilizations has been economic turmoil. So we've seen other nations like Greece and Sweden face economic collapses due to unsustainable levels of debt and public spending, and many others collapse due to a never-ending 
a never-ending cycle of high inflation. So comparing the United States to other civilizations throughout history in similar predicaments, where do you see us headed over the next few decades if our approach to fiscal and monetary policy remains unchanged? Well, we could we could go down the path of uh, Weimar Germany and create an inflation uh, that's that's so that's so high and, and traumatic that we, you know, rip apart uh, society basically uh, by destroying or euthanizing, you know, the middle class and and savers and uh, rendering it um, difficult to uh, form mid mid middling size. You know, businesses. Um, uh, we can still perhaps have you know plenty of nano entrepreneurship, but you know that that might help individuals like well, you know, selling apples or cigarettes or what have you uh, during during the depression did, but it doesn't really um, you know drive productivity gains. Uh, and of course, it's very difficult to to start a a good scalable business when. You have no idea what your costs are going to be, um, or uh, what uh, price you'll be able to get for your for your good or service. Okay, and that's that's an interesting interesting comparison um, because with with Weimar Germany, um, obviously what happened was not just um, high inflation but um, hyperinflation, where the government kept on printing, um, you know unprecedented uh, amounts of money um, in higher and higher denominations until the money had lost um, virtually all of its value. So um, I, I don't know um, what, what, what would we, what, what well, stage it, would the United States have to come to for us to see similar levels of inflation? Is that, is that a possibility for us? I, I think it is given recent talk, um, you know, with um, modern monetary theorists uh, gaining the, the year of, uh, of policymakers, and uh, you know, with um, people being nominated for major uh, major roles in, in the administration and bank uh, regulation, who um, you know essentially uh, were were espousing um, you know the nationalization of the of the banking system and 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 whatnot, um, and all of that crazy talk about the platinum coin. I don't know if you saw my piece on on that, but um, there's just uh, a, a, the Overton window is uh, open quite wide uh, right now um, with all sorts of, uh, of policy ideas uh, being thrown around. And uh, you, you never know how policy might, makers might might react. And the, the other important point to make is that um, things don't have to be as bad as in, in Weimar. Uh, for there to be really destructive, um, uh, you know, socially destructive um, outcomes uh, from from inflation, uh, you know, s- sustained just you know ten in the ten to twenty percent range for a few years um, can have uh, dramatically uh, adverse uh, effects. All right. So another thing that I wanted to ask you about are the differences in Congress's approach to stimulatory policy throughout the pandemic as compared to other recessions throughout history. So as many of you may know, the national debt and spending hit all time high levels during the Second World War and have increased to high levels throughout other tumultuous times in our history. However, they've typically returned to lower levels after the crises had passed. So, Dr. Wright, I wanted to ask about um, what differences there were in our economic policy approach to this pandemic as compared to other recessions throughout history. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has really uh, ballooned quite uh, quite quickly. And, um, you know, uh, I guess velocity uh, has has dropped uh, as well. Um, but if philosophy, uh, velocity picks up, um, we could see, uh, you know, um, uh, even more uh, upward um, pressure on, on prices. Uh, Things like the the world, uh, you know, World War Two and, and the and the Civil War, um, the the government did did borrow uh, large uh, large sums, but those were really existential crises. Uh, there was no doubt that there were slaveholders in the South uh, who would like nothing more than to um, conquer the the North, uh, at least uh, politically. And um, and spread that that pernicious peculiar institution over the entire uh, United States. And there's also no doubt uh, what you know Germany and uh, Japan uh, would do to the United States uh, if it if it could. Um, COVID uh, is is not um, and was not ever an existential crisis. Um, Certain policymakers have done their darndest to paint it in that light, but it was never anywhere close. Um, so uh, the, the massive spending that has gone on does not seem to be justified uh, in um, many people's uh, eyes um, you know, from from a, from a, a standpoint of strict uh, strict necessity. Uh, it seems like it was a um, you know an excuse. Uh, to, um, to to meet other political and, and policy uh, agendas, and so um, uh, you know, with with it seeming not not justified, uh, lots of people are wondering why they should continue to to pay to pay taxes, um, or why they should not uh, you know work harder to uh, engage in in tax uh, avoidance. Um, and I think that uh, you know people in Washington D.C. understand that, and that's why uh, they wanted to make some changes to uh, the tax system, like monitoring bank accounts uh, over four hundred over four hundred dollars, because they're they're afraid that uh, tax receipts are going to plummet. As people say, why am I giving money to this uh, you know to this uh, regime in, in in Washington that seems to take and take and take and doesn't uh, really do any uh, much of anything to to benefit, you know, me and my family and my community. Okay, um, so over the years, um, you've written and written um, or co-written and co-edited uh, dozens of books. Um, one that especially caught my eye was financial exclusion. So, can you please tell us a bit about the premise of the book and why it's relevant? Uh, yeah, that was um, my way of sort of uh, summarizing uh, the research that I've been doing for, for some 20 years on U.S. financial uh, history through the lens of, uh, you know, um, discrimination. So I essentially um, tell, you know, the general story of U.S. financial um, development um, from a, from a, a non non racial or, or gender um, lens. Uh, and then I go through the same story 
through the lenses of African Americans, American Indians, uh, women, and um, and poor whites, uh, to to try to judge the extent that they were uh, excluded from the the financial system uh, solely on the basis of uh, of of their their birth, their you know their skin color or their um, their gender or their 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 social class. Uh, and then I suggest that the best way to reduce uh, discrimination is to uh, allow more uh, open competition in uh, financial markets and and institutions. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not hard to see um, how the the market, um, if left to its own natural devices, um, would would reduce um, it, at least discrimination, um, at least in theory. Um, if if it's truly a free market economy, um, any any business owner would ha- have a hard time discriminating on the basis uh, of race or gender, just because um, you know if they don't if they don't if they refuse to serve someone you know they they're, they have competition that will, and so I, I get um, how how in in theory a, a perfect free market would would um, reduce discrimination altogether. Um, but when we when we look inwards to our own policy approach to this, there there have been there have been calls for um, reparations, um, slavery reparations um, for African Americans and, and other marginalized groups, um, and, and all sorts of policies that seek to address um, you know historic discrimination through um, you know modern um, modern changes in, in um, the way we address um, welfare um, and, and th- those sorts of you know um, fiscal policy initiatives so do you right. think that um, today the more effective approach would be to to reduce regulation open up our markets to the extent that discrimination gets weeded out naturally through competition or to try and address um, historic discrimination through modern um, government and public policy initiatives well you can do a little bit of both uh, for example you could help individuals from these underserved communities to form their own financial institutions and then allow them to, uh, you know, to compete uh, at some, some reasonable uh, level of, of scale, um, which uh, would be easier to do if there weren't so many darn, <laughs> darn, darn regulations that, um, you know, create the necessity for uh, what I call so, um, uh, um, minimal regulatory scale, uh, and there are plenty of examples of this throughout history and up into you know the the, the modern period. Uh, the Lakota, for example, in South Dakota, uh, have set up um, you know their own their own VC funds and uh, now their own their own credit unions. Um, and uh, the reason why it's uh, important to allow them uh, to to enter is because they understand the nature of um, credit risks on the reservation much more clearly than, than outsiders can. Uh, an outsider, for example, value, valuing what's called a res car, um, you know, might see it as a bad, <laughs> might, might see it, you know, as, as something that's so dreadful that you can't even put a positive economic uh, value on it and, and hence won't um, use it as collateral for a loan. Uh, but somebody who's grown up in that uh, community knows that that res car does uh, have have value and could uh, could could lend, uh, you know, on on the basis of it uh, as, as as collateral. 
Um, somebody who grows up in that community knows a lot more about the different types of land tenure that they have on uh, uh, Indian reservations uh, and, and can um, you know, value its, um, its, its collateral value more, more accurately than, than somebody from the outside. Um, uh, there are some examples, uh, for example, in um, Amish uh, communities. Uh, where uh, the banks weren't owned by Amish, but they um, hired people from the Amish community to help to assess Amish credit risks, and uh, they they've been quite uh, quite successful. So, so I think one of the key challenges, especially in a lot of inner city or, or disadvantaged communities, um, you know, that have been um, historically marginalized or institutionally pressed um, is to increase investment. Um, and that's that's been um, especially challenging because I think when we look at it um, from a statistical perspective, um, a lot of um, inner city communities, uh, a lot of poor communities have higher um, just overall rates on average of violence, um, right. of, of um, drug abuse, all sorts of things um, that prevent um, potential or prospective investors from um, coming and setting up their businesses or open locations um, in those sorts of um, communities. So one of the key issues here is how do we um, increase investment in these neighborhoods, which then in turn increases jobs, it increases wages, increases competition and overall economic outcomes. Um, so what, what do you think are, are some effective steps that we can take um, to reduce the sort of discrimination um, by, by increasing investment? What, what, what do we need to be doing um, in, in these sorts of communities from, well, from a policy okay. standpoint? Yeah, again, just, um, you know, op opening up competition and opening up people's minds to, to this being an actual thing that they can do um, and then uh, listening to them uh, to, to understand what the barriers that they face are. Because too often people want to come in from the outside and kind of like push and, and shove them in, uh, in, in what they think is the, the correct uh, direction. But oftentimes it's not. So, uh, for, for example, um, just before the, the global financial crisis, I was involved in starting up uh, a, new, a new bank, De Novo Bank, uh, in Chicago that was going to lend um, to uh, handicapped people uh, and, and take deposits from that. Uh, and we were going to build the institution literally from the ground up um, with the notion uh, in mind that... Uh, you know, the customers would be in wheelchairs or they'd be visually impaired or, um, you know, they didn't have uh, difficulty hearing or, or, or what, what have you. And the mover behind that was a person who um, uh, was uh, uh, paraplegic and, uh, you know, was in a wheelchair all the time. And uh, he had made a lot of money um, in, uh, in, in the stock market during the dot-com uh, boom. And was just frustrated with dealing with traditional um, financial institutions. And unfortunately, the, um, uh, the the global financial crisis ended that. Um, but the insights that 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 person had, uh, I could not have um, because I, you know, I, I didn't have uh, any of those uh, any of those issues. Um, but uh, you you just need to you know to, to to find people who are who are facing difficult and ask them. And then listen to what they say and then try to help them with very specific um, uh, barriers in their way. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, um, perfectly. Um, So finally, a a recent book that you you edited was called The Best of Thomas Paine. So as as one of the most influential figures of the American Revolution, I'm sure many of our viewers are familiar with him. So I wanted to finish off today by asking you to tell us a bit more about the relevance of this book and of Thomas Paine's views in our contemporary society and what we stand to learn from him. Oh, there there are so many. Some, Some deal with debt. Uh, you know the the, the national uh, the national debt issue, like we talked about earlier. Some deal with um, you know things that are going on in in, in public health. Uh, uh, one of my my favorite lines from uh, him is um, from the the American Crisis in December 1776, uh, when he uh, wrote that tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. <laughs> um, so. Uh, yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the the, the triumph. Uh, he also talks about a UBI, which is uh, the project that I'm working on right now, a universal basic uh, income. Uh, he was um, one of the uh, earliest clear advocates for uh, government paying every individual um, a uh, you know a, 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 an annuity. Um, and or uh, a, a lump sum, um, every individual, man or fe- you know, male or female, rich or poor, um, and uh, he had an interesting uh, justification for it, and even a uh, a financing a financing uh, scheme. And of course, UBI right now is uh, very hot in policy circles. It's it's the discussion tamped down a bit because of uh, COVID. Um, but I'm I'm sure it's going to uh, heat heat back up again uh, soon. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and I'm sure our viewers will love hearing your take. Um, so, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Wright. Thank you. I had a great time. Okay. So once again, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review, and as always, we'll be back soon with the latest. <laughs>